everyone, and welcome back to the Whale Nerds podcast. My name is Caitlin, and this is episode 132. Um, we're going to talk about humpback whale migrations in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, but before we get into that, I just want to take a moment to thank everyone for supporting the podcast, um, whether that's through Patreon, where you give to us monthly, um, and you get behind the scenes access to a few things, or by coming out on trips. I see some of you are starting to sign up for those spring trips, so tickets are starting to go, um, especially for the Friday and Saturday dates. So if you're thinking about signing up, definitely do it sooner rather than later. Um, typically, they start to fill up pretty fast after the new year. So we still have spaces left for all three dates for April, but um, definitely you want to get on that. Um, also, thank you for listening. Thank you for uh, following along with us over the years and also for rating and reviewing the podcast or sharing it with other people. Um, that way we're finding new listeners and sharing cool whale science with more people around the world. Um, for updates, uh, Slater is in Africa on safari, so I'm by myself on this one. Um, but we do have other updates all the time on our website, what's going on with whale nerds in general. We've got a blog. You can find more information about signing up for our trips. We also have a little bit of merch available on our website and then video versions of our episodes from 100 onwards are also available on our YouTube. So the website is thewhalenerds.com and then our Facebook, our Instagram and our YouTube are all at whale nerds for the handle. So really easy to find us online. Um, as far as sightings go, I didn't really talk about it during the last episode. Of course, we got a little sidetracked when we got to that part. Um, but sightings whale season is definitely starting the beginning of the peak now that we're in the middle of January here in Maui. Uh, we've started to see a lot of new young calves, like really, really tiny babies. Dorsal fins still folded over getting assisted with mom. Some of them are still that really pale gray color, very clean skin, very fresh, brand new babies. Um, we have had a little bit of uh, like small scale competition groups, not quite every day, but um, quite a few times throughout the week, like three or four whales, at least maybe five whales. Um, still lots of diving pairs, still a few young whales around. And uh, so there's quite a variety of wildlife and sightings throughout uh, the Maui Nui Basin. So around the four islands of of Maui, and it's a great time to go whale watching. So if you're on your way here, the whales are here. It's been super exciting. Some interesting things that I've observed over the last couple of weeks is we were watching a competition group for probably 15 minutes or so, maybe a little more than that. And it was small. It was only like four whales. And um, there were a couple bottlenose dolphins escorting the group, which were really hard to pick out at first. I think there was really only, when I first saw them, I thought there was only two. It did end up being four. Um, and I think we saw like the winner get established. So all of a sudden it was down to two whales with these dolphins. And I was like, where did the other ones go? And it, they seemed to have just like kind of peeled off and gave up. And then the whales dove, they came by the boat, they kind of buzzed the boat and then they dove for a long time, like probably eight or nine minutes the first time. And the, but the dolphins stayed really close to them and the water was so clear that I knew they were right by the boat because the dolphins kept coming up by the boat. So I just left the engines off and let the people enjoy the dolphins. And then the whales came up, they circled the boat again, they kind of like turned and rolled around a little bit with us, and then they dove for over 20 minutes. 
So I think that was the female and the primary escort that won the competition group. And then these four bottlenose dolphins were just spying on them, whatever they were doing down there. Um, so that's the first time I've ever seen like a competition group end and then seen the behavior right afterwards of the female and the suspected winner, um, which to be honest is pretty boring. I could see how people are like, well, I don't know where this competition group went. And then they just give up trying to observe it. But since the dolphins were there, keeping track of it, it was really interesting to be able to see that happen and, and confirm like this was the end of the competition group. Cause these animals were associated together. And then also we've had some really cool mom calf escort encounters. One of them actually was two days in a row with a mom who had um, a yearling with her. And she's had this yearling with her. I think since she got here, like maybe three weeks I feel like I've seen her a lot since I got here. She hang, she's been hanging out mostly um, on like either the right near Ma'alaya, somewhere either just barely on the west side, shy of like Alawalu, like not even that far over to the west, or she's been somewhere along the south shore. She's been kind of in the top of Ma'alaya Bay a lot too, and her calf is very silly, um, has really white flukes, so it's kind of easy to keep track of, and she has pretty white flukes as well. And the calf has quite a bit of white on the belly and it has some interesting distinct scars on its back. So just kind of anecdotally, they definitely have been here for a few weeks. I'm surprised she hasn't kicked this kid out of the house already because it's it's huge and it seems to be fine by itself, but still tagging along with mom. And for two days in a row, I don't know if it's the same escort. I think it is because the dorsal fin looks the same, but I don't have photos of the tail from both days to prove it. I don't think our crew might have gotten photos and sent it to our research team, but I haven't been able to confirm any of that. So we had the mom, calf, well, mom, yearling, escort, and like a challenger or two the first day. And so I thought when I first approached it, it was a competition group. And then like, it really was more clear once we got there and settled in that there was an escort, two escorts trying to challenge the primary escort. And he kind of chased them off. And so I turned the boat off because they all kind of settled down and they were calm, really close to the boat. And the naturalist is like, I think I hear something. And so we're, we had a boat wake coming at us. So I was like, let me just kind of square up the boat to take the wake. And then uh, we'll just turn the boat off and listen. And the way we could hear the whale so clearly through the hull of the boat in, in the air we didn't have to even put, the, we did, I don't even think that trip we put the hydrophone in because we listened to the song for two cycles and everyone on deck could clearly hear it. No, I asked if they wanted me to put the microphone in and they were like, oh no, we can hear it just fine without it. Every single person on the boat, which was incredible. You could record it just with like a video of your phone. Um, at some points you could see the adults down below, even though they're like, 50 or 60 feet down under the boat. There's a little bit of white on their bodies that was reflecting off the sun. The water was super clear and we got to listen to the song for two full cycles. And like, you could tell when he was about to come up, we're like, okay, I think this is the end of the song. He's kind of stopped. And then psh, he'd come up and breathe right next to the boat. So the first day that was incredible. That was like the best of the encounter. Um, but then the next day they were right in front of Ma'alaya Harbor. So I had like just finished the safety briefing and we found the yearling 
and it kind of like rolled around and slapped its flipper. That's why I even decided to go watch them. And it was pretty calm. So I turned um, the naturalist again was like, I hear something funny up in the front of the boat. And I was like, it's probably the whale singing. And she was like, no way. And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure we had this group yesterday. So I turned the boat off again. It wasn't as clear, but all the passengers did say they could hear the the higher and louder notes. So then I was like, this is our best chance to hear the song clearly throughout the whole day. I mean, there's no better time to drop your hydrophone than when you can kind of hear the whale through the deck of the boat anyway. So um, we put the hydrophone in, let people take photos, videos, voice memos, whatever. You could see the whales near the boat during some parts of the encounter again, which was incredible. We weren't in as deep of water, so they didn't have as much room to go underneath us. But again, very uh, close to the boat, didn't mind the boat being there, and the male escort was singing again that next morning. So pretty awesome encounters that we've had um, out of the Ma'alaya side. And then Lahaina side, uh, there are lots of whales over there too, starting to be lots of calves over there. We had a really nice sunset encounter with a mom and calf. And then mom was like totally asleep, like didn't even care how close the boat was. Um, it was just like totally zonked out. And the calf was asleep and like had it t- the tip of its chin kind of like resting over her eye. So they were like kind of almost at 90 degrees to each other. And the calf was like resting on top of the mom. And it was really, really cute. But I didn't want to bother them. So I was like, okay, let's let's slowly back away from them and let's leave. And we got like maybe a half mile away and then they started both double breaching. So nap time was over, of course. And so we turned around and we went to go uh, check them out. And uh, it was pretty amazing. They were active almost the rest of the dinner cruise, which was like another hour and a half. And so that was super fun definitely an awesome sunset treat to see them breaching and the calf even like when we went to go in we like left them and then I think we went back by them on our way home the calf was breaching and it was dark out (laughs) so pretty cool uh I do want to put a little bit of the whale song in this episode so I'm gonna leave a little space for it here so that you guys can take a listen to I got one of the themes from the day that that singer was being really um it was really clear and he was close to the boat and we could hear it that following morning through the boat. And so I'll put that into this episode so that you guys can listen to it right now. Okay, so now we're going to switch gears and we're going to talk a little bit about humpback whales in the Southern Hemisphere. This is something that I've been wanting to learn about. Um, And especially when Slater got home from Tonga, I started researching some of the information about migration routes and patterns of humpbacks in the Southern Hemisphere. 
And there are currently seven discrete population segments recognized and established for the Southern Hemisphere. They do have their own like further divisions and stocks within those um, DPSs, but the DPSs, the numbers are seven through 13. You start with Brazil and then you go east from there is how they numbered it. So number seven is Brazil. Number eight is Gabon and Southwest Africa. Number nine is Southeast Africa and Madagascar. Number 10 is Western Australia. Number 11 is Eastern Australia. Number 12 is Oceania. And number 13 is the Southeast Pacific, which is the West Coast of South America. In general, this is like way too much information to cover in one episode. Um, But I did want to cover some of the information on the whales that migrate to and from South America, Eastern Australia, and Oceania. And I'm going to mostly leave out the northern part of South America, like the whales that cross the equator. Because there is some very interesting stuff going on with that part of the um, population, which would be considered DPS 13. And I think they kind of deserve their own episode. So I'm going to cover that in a different episode. And we may talk more about Southern Hemisphere things in general in the future. Like I was doing some research on the Africa movements. A lot of the papers right now are behind paywalls. So I'll have to follow up with researchers about accessing them, which um, takes more time for me to do the research, but all the papers that I'm going to talk about now, and that will be linked in the show notes on Facebook are all open access papers. So anybody can access them on the internet. I'll give you the links to them. And I cannot thank these researchers enough for making their science public. Uh, It definitely increases the odds of people uh, sharing your science. If you have open access papers, that's my little, um, soapbox always 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 when I'm researching these episodes the less people I have to email for individual papers the less time it takes me to research and the more likely it is that I'm going to do a good job of covering that topic entirely and hopefully inspiring people to learn about that particular topic or take action for conservation in that area because a lot of the papers we're going to talk about I mean this turns into like some real life um marine protected areas and like migration corridor things to consider and other conservation actions that um, become legal once we understand like where these whales are going and what they're doing when they get there. Um, So yeah, thanks for your open access papers. (laughs) Uh, So the first paper we're going to talk about, this one's like a good primer for what's going on with the South Pacific whales and kind of just everything that how what's happening in Antarctica with humpback whales and and feeding. Um, It's called Population Structure of South Pacific Humpback Whales and the Origin of the Eastern Polynesian Breeding Grounds. It was published in 2007 in Marine Ecology Progress Series. And this is actually a genetics analysis paper, but the background information that they provide is a really good primer for understanding the migrations in the Southern Hemisphere. So whalers actually determined five main feeding areas off the coast of Antarctica in the 1900s. So if you are looking at the continent on a map and um, if you're watching the YouTube version, you'll see me like making Antarctica with my hand. (laughs) So if you're looking at the continent on a map and the Western Antarctic Peninsula is at the top, 
area number one is the top. And then we're going to go around clockwise around the continent. So the area number one is around the South Shetland Islands and the Antarctic Peninsula. Area number two is the Waddell Sea and around the Falkland Island dependencies. Area number three is between Bovet and Kerguelen Islands. Area number four is between Kerguelen Islands and Western Australia. Area number five includes the Ross Sea and is between 130 degrees east and 170 degrees west. There is actually an area number six listed now. Um, it really was more identified initially for blue whales feeding, um, but humpbacks are using that space. Um, when the whalers first identified them, they weren't really having a whole lot of humpback presence there, but that's changed over time. And that's from 170 degrees west to 120 degrees west. So again, area number one, if we want to talk about uh, the longitude is area number one's at the top, 120 to 60 degrees west. Then we keep going around. Area number two is 60 degrees west to zero degrees west. Area number three is from zero degrees to 70 degrees east. Area number four is from 70 degrees to 130 degrees east. Area number five is from 130 degrees east to 170 degrees degrees west and then area number six is 170 degrees west to 120 degrees west so we're going around the bottom of the planet looking at all these areas so basically how that relates to like where are these whales coming from which we'll kind of like get into throughout the episode the gen the general assumption you can kind of put in your mind is that the whales just swim straight south to that Antarctic part of the coast from wherever they're coming from. So the easiest way to visualize that is whales that are coming from South America on either side. The tip of South America points right at the tip of the Western Antarctic Peninsula. Those whales go to the peninsula. Now, if you drew a line down from South Africa, you're going to see that they go to a different part of the coast. Same thing from uh, Oceania, they're going to drop down straight down mostly um, to like areas, uh, I believe, four, five, and six. Australia, same thing. And so, of course, humpbacks have no rules. We've already established that. They do change it up, but mostly their general trajectory is straight south from wherever their breeding ground is. So they do use all sides of the Antarctic coast. Um, and so that's kind of like, I feel like my brain was upside down trying to like understand how to explain this <laughs> and look at it. Um, but if you look at some of the maps that are in the papers, it's really helpful to establish like where they all are. So how the whalers established these zones and how they're connected to the breeding grounds now. So whalers initially use these things called discovery tags, which I found in an article that'll be kind of like a bonus article um, that it has a really good explanation of like the history of what a discovery tag is. And um, so dis discovery tags, basically the point was to put them in a live whale with some sort of code on them so that you knew when and where that whale was tagged. And then when you caught the whale later, you would get the tag back and compare where the whale was tagged with where you caught it. They actually still do that with fish today. 
Um, so the first iteration of a drawing pin mark was used by the discovery committee. It resembled a large drawing pin. It consisted of a hollow barbed metal head about six and a half centimeters in length arising from the center of a flat metal disc that was about four and a half centimeters in diameter. The disc bore an inscription and an address for where to return the mark together with a serial number. So you mail it back to the original person who deployed the tag because they have all the tagging information. The mark was mounted on a wooden shaft, which was fitted into the barrel of a modified 12-bore shotgun. The mark was designed to penetrate just below the surface of the blubber of the whale, leaving the disc flush with the skin, with the wooden shaft disengaging and falling away. The mark would thus be visible on the body of the sur- on the surface of the whale. Uh, so many of the whales were marked on the whaling grounds around South Georgia using this original discovery pin. Um, but no mark, no pins were ever recovered. And since the mark didn't penetrate deeper than six and a half centimeters into the blubber, there's no doubt that it was quickly rejected by the whale. Um, since it is now known that blubber superates readily and the whales can rid themselves of deep rooted external parasites. So basically the whale's body had a way to quickly reject the pin Um, Since it was just in the blubber thinking, you know, it was a parasite, which I mean, you know, kind of is. Okay, so once they realized that the drawing pin external mark was not working, um, they considered the an internal mark. And this is called the standard discovery mark. And it was a one and a half centimeter diameter metal tube. That was 23 centimeters in length, and it was fitted with a conical, bluntly pointed, leaded ballistic head with a shotgun cartridge crimped on the open end of the tube. The tube was originally made of aluminum, but they found that this corroded too quickly and was replaced with stainless steel. The tube was engraved with a serial number and a legend and the address for the return, it was again fired from a modified 12-bore shotgun, and the mark was designed to bury itself completely in the body of the whale and then be found later once it was captured and processed. So once they flinched the whale and started to um, render the oil out of the blubber, then they would find <clears throat> this, dis- this discovery marker um, during that process. There was a modification Um, made later on because they found that during the processing of the carcass, the pins and the markers were getting lost. They weren't finding them during the flensing and and butchering process. And they would find, they would find them like after they boiled the, the blubber and really started to finally cut up the meat. But at that point, sometimes like the processing of each individual whale would overlap a little bit. So the accuracy of the data was um, a little less. And so to improve the chances of the marks being detected at an early stage of processing the uh, carcass, they were uh, modified to include six colored nylon threads, each approximately 1.5 centimeters thick and two meters long. So like a streamer um, coming out of the open end of the tube to indicate the presence of the mark to the flensers so that they would have an opportunity to collect um, biological samples. Like they want to know information about like um, reproductive system, baling plates, earplugs, so that they can try to build, 
life history information about these animals, since they are getting data about where they're coming and going from. Um, because eventually, you know, you have to look at this as like whaling was a fishery, right? So like it is in their best interest to understand the patterns and life history of the whale, if they're going to be really good at catching them and also managing, um, how many, like, what's your stock assessment? What's your quota? Things like that. So, um, that was pretty interesting to like actually read the history of how discovery tags worked. Like I kind of knew what they were, but, um, now I really understand it. Um, so in addition to the discovery tags that were recorded and made public by whalers, um, there has been photo ID effort, there has been genetic studies done, and there have been satellite tagging efforts made to understand where these whales are moving from the breeding grounds into these feeding areas around the Antarctic. Until recently, it was thought that the Antarctic Area 6 did not encompass a population um, comparable to the neighboring areas of uh, Area 5 and Area 1, um, and that consequently there were no major winter breeding grounds in far Polynesia to the north of Area 6, um, despite its extensive whaling effort across the South Central Pacific, um, Central South Pacific, excuse me, during the 19th century and in adjacent Antarctic waters during the 20th century. Um, no concentrations of humpback whales were identified in these regions. However, in the last decade, evidence has grown in support of a substantial number of whales in Area 6 and Eastern Polynesia. Following the revelation that extensive illegal whaling by the USSR from 1947 to 1972 and 1973, revised records show substantial, substantial, that's a hard word to say, substantial catches extending from 135 degrees west during 1959, 1960, and 1960, 1961, mostly in Antarctic waters. So USSR knew these whales were there, and they caught a lot of them during the illegal whaling operations that they conducted after um, whaling was coming to an end. More recently, sighting surveys have shown relatively high concentrations of humpback whales in Antarctic Area 6, and finally, surveys around the Cook Islands and in French Polynesia conducted since the early 90s have confirmed a significant concentration of humpback whales in these waters uh, during the winter months. So kind of on the origin of the breeding grounds in eastern Polynesia, the genetic differentiation observed in this study, because remember this is genetics paper, uh, together with demographic evidence demonstrating only limited movements of individuals among breeding grounds, they're loyal to where they were born. They go where their mom takes them. Um, is more consistent with the hypothesis of a historically unrecognized breeding stock in far Polynesia, rather than the alternative hypothesis of recent colonization or vagrancy from neighboring breeding areas. Um, if if the recolonization or new discovery of a new location is the would be the case, um, both the absence of differentiation genetically and evidence of greater genetic diversity by these individual whales in these breeding grounds would be observed, but that's not the case. So these whales are their own breeding stock and the genetics do show that. Um, the, his the lack of historical accounts of humpback whales in Eastern Pol Polynesia is puzzling. Um, Tahiti was a popular port for provisioning for whaling vessels in the South Pacific during the 19th century and was chronicled in several documents. 
A general lack of interest by whalers in the presence of humpback whales seems unlikely as humpback whales were an economic, although less desirable alternative to more, the more valuable sperm whale. Um, in other ports of the South Pacific, there were detailed descriptions of whalers engaged in hunting sperm whales and subsequently turning their attention to humpback whales in the winter. Uh, in his account, uh, there was a whaler that had an account near Tonga where this was the case, where they were targeting sperm whales, but they did end up hunting humpback whales instead. It is possible that the current distribution represents a relocation into eastern Polynesia by humpback whales from a more remote and unknown area, but this is not likely with the general observation of humpback whales showing very strong height, uh, site fidelity to breeding grounds and feeding grounds. A similar case or for recent relocation or colonization of breeding grounds was made for Hawaii and the northern West Indies, that's the Caribbean, um, neither of which appear to host, appeared to host large concentrations of humpback whales until recently. Thus, the origin, although not the existence of the breeding grounds in eastern Polynesia, must remain for now an open question. So here in Hawaii... I mean, I think of it as a rumor. A lot of people say that there's not um, a lot of traditional um, indigenous knowledge and storytelling about whales in Hawaii, um, which maybe gives people a pause about the fact that the humpbacks have been migrating here for thousands of years. Maybe they've only been migrating here for hundreds of years. Um, I don't really like that stance personally because there was during colonization of Hawaii, but also um, areas of the South Pacific and many places around um, the Americas and the West Indies, also known as the Caribbean, um, we there was mass genocide of people during colonization, right? People died of diseases, people were put into slavery, people were sent to other places, displaced from their homes. And so, like, we don't know if we eliminated some of the storytellers that had that knowledge, I mean, these cultures were highly um, separated and split into pieces and we don't know everything that was lost. And the indigenous people may not know either if it's gone, if that information is gone, it's gone. And so just because Western you know, European sailors came looking for whales doesn't mean they weren't there. Um, it doesn't mean they didn't pass by in rough seas. They weren't looking around the right islands. Like if you come to Hawaii during December, there are quite a few whales that are easy to see between the four islands of Maui. But if you sail to Kauai or Oahu, maybe you don't see any. And you're out in the deep water off the end of the island chain looking for sperm whales. Well, the humpbacks like to be in here in the shallow water. So something like that could have happened. And they went by before the season was really busy. Didn't happen to notice very many humpbacks around. So didn't make any notes about it because it wasn't worth returning. And then focused again on the more economically valuable sperm whale. I mean, we don't know what happened because we didn't ask any questions before we took over these lands. And so I think it's a, it's a very naive choice to assume that the, that because there's no cultural or indigenous information about these animals being here, that they weren't here. That 
you can't take that as like, oh, well, it means the whales are new to this area. That's not necessarily what it means. It means the person that knew about them didn't share that information with anybody else before they were gone. So I, yeah, I, I have a personal like issue with that. Um, and if there's science to, to show that it's a new, um, area that the whales have started using recently, great. I'll happily change my stance, but until then, I think you can't say definitively that the whales weren't in these places. I think the whales have been in these places the whole time. We just didn't know that. And that's kind of a tricky thing with Western science and the way we traditionally do science in published journals and articles like this is like, like we talked about with the the bowhead whales in um, the high Arctic, like the indigenous people, the whalers up there, their lives literally depend on knowing these patterns of these whales, but Western science didn't believe them for a long time. And now they do. Yes. Whales can smell. Yes. Whales oil content in their bone changes as they age you know, all this information. So again, my, another little, one of my soapbox is talking about this topic. Um, it's, you have to take the whaling records with a grain of salt, right? A lot of them were, um, manufactured and covered up like the USSR is a great uh, example of that. Um, our methods of mark recapture have definitely gotten better over time. Now we have genetics to back us up. Now we have satellite tags to back us up. So, when we're presented with new information, we have to kind of continue to, to adjust um, what we know about these whales and then start to ask better questions about the past. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a baseline for a lot of this information. We have old whaling logs, um, but we don't know what these whales were doing without human pressure before we started hunting them. So... Uh, that was kind of a primer paper. It's really more of genetics one. So if you want to look at it, if you want to get into the dirty details of that, I'll give you the link. Um, but this next one is, um, an interesting record of a very long migration of a whale in the Southern hemisphere. It's called return movement of a humpback whale between the Antarctic peninsula and American Samoa, a seasonal migration record. This was published in 2011 in endangered species research. This study used photo identification data and analyzed it to determine the migration route of a whale in the central South Pacific breeding ground and the Antarctic feeding grounds. Um, the International Whaling Commission does recognize three distinct South Pacific breeding stocks and substocks with limited longitudinal exchange. So they don't move east to west and switch between breeding stocks very much. Um, it's it does happen, but they tend to kind of stick with where they are in the South Pacific. Historically, individuals within a breeding stock were assumed to migrate more or less directly south to a corresponding Antarctic man management area. However, only two discovery tags were reliably linked from the central South Pacific Ocean breeding areas to an Antarctic feeding area. Um, and it involved horizontal displacements of 10 degrees and 90 degrees. So that's a lot of movement as they go south. That's a lot of east-west movement as they go south. Um, it is important to identify the habitats that these whales use throughout the year so that we can better assess the threats in those areas and protect the whales. This article is the report of, a of the first record of a whale that uses American Samoa as a breeding ground and then was observed on a feeding ground. Humpback whales were surveyed in American Samoa from 2003 to 2008 
they were able to build a catalog of 159 individuals, and they compared those fluke IDs to the Antarctic humpback whale catalog. The comparison was able to yield three matches from two different individual whales between the two catalogs. One was a female that they had one match for, but the other one was a male, um, and they know this because they had genetics to back up um, the IDs. Actually, I think they do cross-reference the previous 2007 paper is how they got the genetics for uh, the whales in American Samoa. So they're kind of cross-referenced to each other in the citations if you want to check it out. Both matches were cited in Area 1 in the Antarctic, which is the peninsula area, um, which is typically used by the South American whales because that's the direct south um, route. So that's a pretty far movement longitudinally, so along the east-west lines, um, to get to Area 1 from American Samoa. If you go straight down from American Samoa, you're actually going to be more like in Area 4 or 5. And so then as you're going around the clock, right, 4, 5, 6, and then you're at 1. Like, that's a long way around. Uh, the minimum one-way distance between the area of the sightings was... Um, between 9,406 to 9,426 kilometers and spanned 108 longitudinal degrees. So east to west movement, 108 degrees. The male was sighted in Antarctica area one before and after the sighting in American Samoa. So this whale did go to those places and return. Um, which makes you kind of leads you to assume that this whale's actual normal migration is from American Samoa to Area One. Obviously, you only have three data points, so take that with a grain of salt. But this whale did make that journey there and back for sure. Like that shows that it did it at least one or two times. The sightings are actually a couple years apart. So the shortest distance possible calculated for how far that whale could have swam in one year is 18,840 kilometers. That's 11,706 miles for a migration. That is, this makes it the longest migration of any mammal on the planet. The Antarctic Peninsula was first identified as a feeding ground for whales seen at American Samoa and one of the very few confirmed for Central South Pacific. Our results support historical evidence of Central South Pacific exchange with Antarctic Area 1, which was once considered anomalous. So that's what they said in the conclusion of their paper. Uh, this whale's ID was also compared to the South American catalogs in an attempt to understand if the whale switches breeding grounds, um, but there was not a match for the breeding grounds in any of the data sets that they compared it to. So only seen in American Samoa and only seen in Antarctic Area 1. Um, they also said, we cannot exclude the possibility that less well-studied Antarctic areas are equally or more important to this population However, our results confirm that this endangered population exhibits some degree of mixing with adjacent non-endangered populations. So the whales in Central South Pacific are faring a lot worse after whaling than populations to the east and west of them. So whales along the Australian coastlines and whales off the South American coastlines are doing a lot better than the whales in between in the Central South Pacific, um, but they are mingling 
on the feeding ground. So just like in California, we have Mexican whales and we have South Mexican Central American whales. The Mexican whales are doing fine. The Central, the Central American and South Mexican whales are still uh, considered threatened status. So you have whales with different statuses using the same uh, space. So how do you manage that? In the U.S., they consider them all endangered at this point, just out of an abundance of caution. But especially in a place like Antarctica, where like no one really owns it, like the rules start to get a little bit trickier when you have whales of different conservation statuses sharing the same physical space. Okay, so the next one is called First Description of Migratory Behavior of Humpback Whales from an Antarctic Feeding Ground to a Tropical Calving Ground. Uh, so this was published in October of 2021 in Animal Biotelemetry, and this is tracking South American whales. So this is tracking breeding stock G, humpback whales on the west coast of South America from feeding grounds in Area 1 the, of Antarctica around the peninsula back to the breeding grounds. So once they depart the feeding grounds at the end of the season, they head north for breeding season. In the 19th century, these animals were most frequently recorded crossing the equator into waters off Columbia, but in recent years, individuals in breeding stock G have also been sighted further north off Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, and in regions frequented by Northern Hemisphere humpback populations. See what I was talking about? I want to make this another episode in and of itself, but this one is interesting um, and kind of fits with this episode, but just know there are some weird things happening around the equator on the west coast of the American continents. <laughs> um, calving behavior for breeding stock G has been observed as early as June, but typically peaks between August and October. Specific calving sites have been documented in nearshore waters off Colombia and Ecuador. Um, a study spanning 31 years from 1988 to 2018 noted that the average date of arrival for individuals of breeding stock G to the calving grounds in uh, Gorgona National Park in Colombia was the last week of May. So um, it's thought that migratory timing and route are heavily influenced by uh, the sex of the whale, their reproductive status, and their age. Um, and it references another paper by Felix and also by Guzman, which are studies of breeding stock G, which has the option of whales going a coastal route up the west side of South America and found that moms and calves prefer that coastal route. Um, but single adults tend to head offshore and kind of take the shortcut in open waters, not unlike gray whales, which we talk about a lot coming down the uh, west coast of North America. Um, historical whaling data for all Southern Hemisphere post-war land whaling stations indicate that females at the end of lactation are the earliest group to leave the Antarctic. So um, whales that are weaning their calves on the feeding grounds are the earliest to leave and head back to the breeding grounds. Followed by immature whales, immature males, resting females, and pregnant females. So pregnant females come last, um, trying to get all those last meals. And um, they are staggered by a pretty good average of dates. So uh, females that are weaning calves first, then about 12 days later, the immature whales of both sexes go. Then about 20 days after that first phase of the migration, mature males go, 23 days, the resting females go, 31 days later, the pregnant females go. 
So they're, they're spread out over a month here in Hawaii. We call that a trickle migration. So whales are coming and going. They don't all come at the same time. Uh, migratory triggers are unknown, but they are hypothesized to be environmental, such as uh, daylight hours, sea ice formation, prey abundance, or inherently biological, such as hormone and body condition-based triggers. Lines up with a lot of what we typically talk about, about migration. We, those are our best thoughts. We don't know for sure. Um, why is learning about the migration route so important? Well, without complete knowledge of the annual movements, including physical migratory routes and migratory connectivity among populations or management units, conservation measures may be deployed in the wrong place at the wrong time for the wrong purpose. So you need to know what the whales are doing, when they're there, and how they got there so that you can set up your best set of uh, network of protections as possible because these whales are crossing country borders. Some of them are crossing hemispheres. Some of them are crossing into um, spending a lot of time in the high seas or um, places like Antarctica where it's not one country's exclusive economic zone. So management is really tricky. You got to make sure you're doing it at the right place at the right time for the right reason. Um, so in this study, whales were tagged in Antarctica from 2012 to 2017, and biopsy samples were collected whenever possible during the tagging effort. 16 whales were tagged um, that had their tags last an average of um, 38.5 days. Five of those whales were tracked for their entire migration north. Um, and of those whales, their tags stayed on for 42 to 266 days. So um, the remaining 11 whales, their tags didn't stay on nearly as long as these five that they got complete migration tracks for. Um, the five whales that were tracked all the way through traveled between the Western Antarctic Peninsula and arrived at the breeding grounds in um, 47, 50, 54, and 41 days. Um, so migration dates, their start, was pretty varied. One whale left as early as March 16th, one whale left as late as July 15th, and animals with tags that continued to transmit through the completion of the migration reached the calving grounds as early as June 19th, but as late as August 1st. Of the 16 animals that initiated the migration, four were um, determined to be pregnant females, four were resting females, one of those was a juvenile female, um, four were males, and then four they did not get biopsies for. Uh, none of the animals that were tagged were accompanying a calf at the time. All the, the animals all used routes with coastal and open water segments to migrate up the western side of South America. While there is no clear difference in departing date between males and females, it did appear that the resting non-pregnant females left the peninsula first, followed by pregnant females and finally juveniles. Non-pregnant females and males all hugged the coast at Cape Horn, while more availability was more variability was seen with pregnant females and the juvenile female, some of which took a more open water course. However, the power to detect the effects of sex or reproductive status is low, given the sample size in the three categories and the potential for interannual variation. Uh, these trends may be rendered obsolete or become clearer with larger sample sizes. So uh, marine mammal scientists are like a statistician's worst nightmare because your sample size is so low. It's hard to use statistics to make your data um, significant. But 
you know, they're probably very excited to get at least 16 tags on whales. And that's what they got. So they're reporting it in and it took them years to get that data. Um, whales did leave from numerous locations on the peninsula and remained relatively dispersed in the Drake Passage. Uh, many animals then passed close to South America's southwestern tip, resulting in a convergence that lasted from the tip of the continent until about 47 degrees south in the region of Chile's Parque Nacional Laguna San Rafael. The whale's trajectories then spread out again and ventured into deeper waters until hitting the coast near Peru's peninsula de Paracas, at which point they migra migrated through a narrow corridor near the coast and up through to the calving areas. Four whales, which was one unknown and then the juvenile resting female and two of the pregnant females did diverge from these trends and chose deeper water routes in areas where the rest of the whales stayed along the coast. Important conservation notes about these routes. Um, the average time spent in national waters, a place with an exclusive economic zone where laws can be enforced, on the northern migration for five animals that completed, of the five animals that they have a complete migration track for, they spent 72.2% of their total migration time in waters that can be regulated. So people can do something about protecting these migratory corridors as these whales are moving up and down the coastline of South America. Um, there's also a lot more detailed information in the paper about um, assessing the behavioral states of the animals during the migration. Like, were they searching for food? How fast were they traveling? At what points during the migration did they maybe slow down and rest? Um, and so it was pretty interesting if you want to get into the details of that and kind of get more of like a, a week by week snapshot of the whales. And as they're moving, they have lots of really cool visuals for all of that. Uh, there's also a lot of comparison in this paper with their results and then previous studies. And some of it, their results agree quite nicely with previous data. Um, but other parts of their data set are pretty strong disagreement with previous work done in this area. So it's interesting to read the in-depth discussion about um, timing to the breeding grounds, swimming speeds on the northbound migration versus southbound migration. So if that's something that piques your fancy, you can find the link on the Facebook page. Or if you don't have Facebook, you can always email us or send us a, a message um, through Instagram or through Patreon. Um, and we can send you the link directly too. So this is our last paper for this episode. It's called Humpback Whale Migrations to Antarctic Summer Foraging Grounds Through the Southwest Pacific. This was uh, published in 2018 in Scientific Reports. And 30 humpback whales were satellite tagged off the east coast of Australia over three summers from 2008 to 2011. This is the E1 stock of DPS number 11. So East Australia, DPS number 11, this is one of the stocks. This stock was nearly depleted by whaling in the 1950s and 1960s, but now the population is at 58 to 98% recovered with no evidence of a slowing growth rate. And their growth rate for this population is like, crazy it's basically exponential statistically if you look at the chart it's like woo, just going straight up 
Um, Eastern Australian humpback whales were hunted along both their migratory corridors and upon their their arrival to the Antarctic feeding grounds during the 20th century. Um, And they may have numbered at just 104 individuals at the end of commercial whaling in 1963 in this region. This population assigned the nomenclature E1 is considered to be one of three metapopulations that comprise population E. Most of the whales in this study were tracked from Eden, which is on the southeast coast of Australia. The 21 whales that were tagged off the eastern Australia coast migrated south along the coastline across the Bass Strait, which separates the mainland of Australia from Tasmania, during the month of October. Throughout November, 12 whales migrated south via the east coast of Tasmania. So um, Tasmania sits like right underneath Australia. So the whales stayed on the eastern side of Australia, shot across to the eastern side of Tasmania and kept moving from there. One whale did actually cross over to the west coast of Tasmania. So kind of like took a diagonal path across the Bass Strait and then continued to go southwest Uh, in the Pacific as it moved towards the Antarctic feeding grounds. Uh, Seven whales traveled eastward into the Tasman Sea, crossing the 160 degrees east meridian while still in their temperate waters. So from Tasmania, they like kept going east longitudinally before they turned south. Three of these whales actually spent time off the southwest coast of New Zealand's South Island. So they went so far east that they went from Tasmania to New Zealand before they continued to transit down to the Southern Ocean. In total, 11 humpback whales tagged in eastern Australia waters traveled south of 60 degrees south with first arrival dates uh, between the 29th of November and the 21st of November. Um for the 2008 and 2010 studies, their average arrival was more like the 10th of December and the 4th of December in 2008 and 2010. So early whales are showing up at the end of November. Most whales are showing up the first or second week of December. And all humpback whales with transmitting tags were in the Antarctic feeding grounds by January at the latest. The latest arrival at all in the study was January 1st in 2009. Um, Their location data did continue to transmit until May. Um, One whale transmitted all the way till the 31st of May in 2010. You might've noticed earlier, I said 12 whales migrated south towards the east coast of Tasmania. And then I said 11 made it to Antarctica. One of them, the tags stopped working um, before it got south of 60 degrees. So 10 out of 21 animals tagged during this migration in Eastern Australia did have search behaviors identified in locations off temperate waters. And these animals were all tagged off of Eden. Three of these whales undertook short search periods of three days near their uh, tagging location right after the tag was deployed. While four of these whales undertook a search extending into the Bass Strait towards Tasmania, and or along the east coast of Tasmania, ranging in a patch duration from four to 35 days. For these whales that traveled eastward, search patches between seven to 10 days were located in the Tasman Sea and off the southwest coast of New Zealand's South Island. So this search behavior indicated by the tag 
they're talking about searching for food. So um, some of the whales that were tagged off Eden spent several days after being tagged feeding right there off the Eden coast. Some whales were feeding through the Bass Strait along the coast of Tas Tasmania. And then when they got over to New Zealand, South Island, were showing um, behavior lined up with feeding over there too. Um, so this paper then goes into a, a pretty hefty discussion about how to model the conditions in which whales are still going to forage on their way south to the feeding grounds. Like what environmental conditions, um, what are the ice conditions that led to these whales having extra meals on the way before they get all the way to the feeding ground? Um, I mean, on their southbound migration, like they have been fasting in the breeding grounds, right? So like they're really hungry. And so it's, it's not, Un like it's not crazy to think that they're probably getting snacks before they get to the main event because uh, that's technically like spring in that region. The ocean conditions are changing, um, food's becoming available, and they still have a lot of mileage to cover before they get to the main feeding ground. Um, the tagging data does line up with some of the anecdotal reports of whales being observed feeding off the coast of Eden. Um, but the tags are also showing that there are other areas that these whales are likely foraging on their migration. So um, does kind of ground truth what people have been saying. They've been seeing whales feeding off the coast of Eden. Um, but then also these tags are revealing that there are other places where these whales are making these pit stops too. These whales use uh, areas four, five, and six in the Antarctic. Um, and that's more area than previously thought based on the whaling data. So now that we have satellite tags to confirm where these whales are going, we're realizing they're using a lot more space on the Antarctic coast than previously thought. Um, both, both of those points I just brought up have some pretty big implications for conservation. Um, these whales are using a really dynamic stretch of the ocean that has rapidly changing ice and has rapidly changing food availability. Um, and there's a really interesting discussion in the paper if you want to get more into the details of all the things that they're trying to consider and how they're trying to model this. Um, definitely a, a place where they need more data, but pretty cool to see where their heads are at as they discuss like, so how do we protect these whales in these places? So I know that was a lot of information, um, but hopefully you learned a few things. I definitely did. I'm not going to lie. Research for this episode took a long time because it was really hard to wrap my brain around like where these whales were going and how they were moving because um, they are literally going to the bottom of the world and like things get really weird when you get to that narrower part of the planet and like trying to visualize the, the continent sitting perfectly around the southern part of our earth and like relating that, that to where these whales are going. And there are a lot of whales in the southern hemisphere um, so this kind of just scratched the surface of like where we're at, where these whales are going. And um, yeah, I definitely want to learn more about it. So if you made it this far, thank you for listening. Um, our secret whale of the week will be Migaloo because he is an Australian whale and has not been seen for a while. So that'll be kind of our secret whale. And can't wait for the next one. Thanks so much for listening. Have a good rest of your week and we'll see you on the next one. Bye.